As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So it's been an amazing couple of weeks. Well, we have a lot going on that we do. We, uh, we actually expect to have the store open by the time our next show airs. I wouldn't believe me if I were you. <laughs> well, I don't believe you, but, no, but, it's, but I'm actually, involved with it, so yeah, I have to. It's so yeah. close. And we're also going to have a Patreon page set up by then, hopefully, for those of you who are interested in supporting the show. It's going to have a fun little video on it, actually, yeah. we're shooting in a, in a week after next. Oh, week. I'm excited and dreading it at the same time. <laughs> uh, but speaking of, of the show, didn't you do a blog entry about the bright spots that were seen on the dwarf planet? Ceres? Yes. Ceres. It's one of those two. Yes. I'm not sure exactly how you say it either, but I did. And you know what? It's funny. I didn't realize it was a dwarf planet, but it is. Oh, yeah. It's it's fascinating. So it's an actually, it's an additional planet in our solar system. Okay, is, so you're going right. You know that for for well, fact. Well, it's a dwarf because, planet. It's yeah. in our solar system, but that, so I can you know, say that, right? Yeah, but you know the whole big uh, Pluto debate because yes. people were very upset. Well, it's fully been demoted. NGDT Neil deGrasse Tyson it comes out and says, like, "Well, I'm sorry, kids. It's really not a planet. It's yes. you know on the dwarf side." But no, it was very interesting because there's two anomalies visual. That are very intriguing. Yes, to see. these these really bright spots of light that people have been freaking out about, so big that they everyone's like, oh, it's it's the size of Miami or something. No one can figure out what they are. Why is this light emanating from this theoretically dead planet? Well, and not just any light, but it, very bright. Very I mean, bright. Uh, yeah, if you've seen the photos of it, I'm sure a lot of folks have. By it's now. on our website. Yeah. If you go back through our blog entries, <laughs> you'll see it. it's two beady, glaring, bright eyes staring back at you. Yeah. yeah. So well, it turns out they think because they have you know the Dawn mission is there. Orbiting uh, series, series, Ceres, Ceres. That's, I'm going with that. I should yeah. have looked before we started. Recording. <laughs> That's okay. But anyway, yeah. it's there. It's orbiting, and they're not sure, but they think now that it might just be salt. That water is being ejected yeah. from beneath the surface, and it's evaporating very quickly because there's no atmosphere, or little to no atmosphere. And what's left behind is this salt. So these may just be salt crystals it's catching crystals. the sunlight. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And the main idea here, though is that it's an active surface rather than a dead surface, which like our moon, I think they, they consider that kind of a dead surface, not a lot of volcanic activity. No, It used to be. That's how you get smooth planes and uh, the smoothing out of craters. But here in this case, yeah, they do believe that uh, stuff is going on currently. Yeah. So I, I don't know, that, but we don't know for sure. I guess the Dawn mission is, is going to descend a little bit closer to the dwarf planet. Is, I don't <laughs> want to say the name. Now, yeah. I'm sure I'm saying it's, it right. it's fine. It is going to yeah. get closer. And I guess going forward, we're going to know more what it is. Now, let's not cross off the fringy possibilities that I'm still hoping for. Some kind of moon structure. Just Google that. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this 
is Forrest Burgess. I have learned from experience that a modicum of snuff can be most efficacious. Fictional character Hieronymus Carl Friedrich von Munchausen on escaping from a monster. Join us tonight as we take a look back at a gold prospector's encounter in 1924 that would later become simultaneously one of the most absurd and most intriguing Bigfoot encounters of all time. I didn't know this till you dug that up, but Baron Munchausen was based on a real man. Did you know that? Yes. Oh, well, yeah, because uh, when I first heard about him, uh, well, also, I'm a, I'm a huge Terry Gilliam fan, of course, Time yes. Bandits and all those great classics. Great movies. And uh, I'd heard about it before, you know, and then started, when I heard about the, he was making a film about him, I started digging into it. And it's like, yeah, he's a real guy that these legends were kind of taken from. And, and, and this is the point we're trying to make, I think, with tonight's show. You can disagree with me or not, but... It's about folklore and the fun in some of these stories, even though they might be preposterous. We allow that. That's right. We, As we would say in film school, suspension of disbelief. We gravitate towards the preposterous sometimes. Yeah, but but that's the thing. But Munchausen has – you've heard of Munchausen by proxy. Yeah, there's Nothing. two or three yeah. diseases and situations named after that guy. Yeah. Apparently, yeah. he was very irritated uh, by oh. the fact <laughs> – <laughs> that he became kind of a joke for oh, tall dear. tales. You yeah. mean you mean during in his, his time? time? Yes. Uh, well, because there was books written, and then I think there were plays, and he was still alive for that. Oh, he dear. certainly didn't live to see uh, Terry Gilliam's films that we know of, because yeah. he's he is uh, he he's fictional, a couple yeah. hundred years old. But that's the thing. I <laughs> I think old timers are generally upset when you don't believe them, even if they're kind of tall tales, because I think after a while it becomes part of their lore and our collective uh, history of folklore. Well, and you know what? It's it's funny. It also reminds me of that movie Big Fish. Did you see that? It was a Tim Burton movie. Oh, yeah, I yeah. I love that movie, actually. Yeah, I know. That was that was great. Now, this is the, the thing I, I didn't have uh, in common with the, the main character is that he gets upset with his father. He's estranged from him because all his life, his dad was a traveling salesman, was gone a lot. All he knew from his about his dad were these tall tales that he would tell him in the in the brief times that he would see him. Right. And then as he got older, he realized, like, well, this is a bunch of baloney, and, and my, I don't know my dad at all. And he won't stop telling these stories. And, of course, not to, 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 to spoil it for anybody, but he kind of starts to believe towards the end there that maybe these weren't all such tall tales. Well, that's one of the great things about that movie is that in the end you find out that those tall tales have a seed in truth. Almost all folklore does. Well, that's interesting you mention that because I started to come to believe that a little bit about the stories that we're going to cover tonight and the main one, of course. Yes. We're cover. Well, and, th and by the way, here's the thing. We're going to talk about Bigfoot tonight, and it, it's it's funny. We've sort of joked about Bigfoot in the past with the show. Bigfoot is a is a um, Bigfoot is a non-starter for some people who listen to <laughs> well, our sure. genre. Yeah. We're hoping that you'll stick with us, and because you, you're going to find this one enjoyable, I guarantee it. There's there's a million people obsessed with Bigfoot on both sides of the argument, and. There will be a time for us to take a look at a few of the more famous and serious encounters, including the Patterson-Gimlin film, oh, yeah. which we're going to touch on tonight, but not get into too deeply. We have a, a lot of research on that already. We're working on something for that that we'll get to down the road. But we felt like our first foray into the subject should be one that's fun. So no matter where you come down on it, this story tonight is not one out in the mainstream zeitgeist. I mean, most serious Bigfoot enthusiasts know it for sure, but... We think the general public might not have heard this one. <laughs> well, no, yeah. And you know what? I, I had not really been that familiar with it. I think I heard the name Albert Ostman and didn't really know the story. And I think you turned me on to it. And it's like, well, that's quite a yarn. <laughs> There's no question, though, that it's entertaining. And that's kind of the point, though, with folklore is that it's entertainment pre-internet days. 
All right, so let, why don't we introduce the man who tells the story first? Let's do a little background on him. His name was Albert Osman. He was a first-generation Swedish immigrant. He was born in 1893 mm. to Mrs. Albertine Osman. <laughs> well, yeah, keeping the family name alive. Yeah. yeah. Or the first name, anyway. And the last, I guess. Yes, yes. And uh, he was born in Ornskoldsvik, Sweden. Nice. I feel like after saying Ornskoldsvik, I'm supposed to say Sweden. <laughs> so Sweden. Yeah, for sure, from Sweden. Not been after okay. Sverdlost Oblast, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah there you go. Anyway, they lived just 15 minutes northeast of there in a very small town called Arnesval. And this was not far from the west coast of the Baltic Sea. So... When he got older, at the age of 20, he actually wound up leaving Sweden for better opportunities overseas. Now, the gold rush of 1849 was old news by the time he left in 1913, but there were rumors of lost gold mines all over the Pacific Northwest and the Northwest Territories of Canada. That might have been a little bit of a motivator for him, but he also was looking for work. He, he was looking for better opportunities, and he was going to get in this very small town in Sweden. And there were a lot of Swedish immigrants settling in the western part of Canada. At, at this particular time. So he probably had a bunch of friends over there already. Yeah. Well, you've heard of uh, Swedish Hospital. That's in Seattle. Very famous. Well, that's the... No, the, actually, the, I haven't heard okay, of that. Well, that's where the show... Thank you for putting me on the spot. What? I have no idea what that is. Really? Yeah. Now you're joking. Because that's... No, well, that's not the, actually mad, That's where the show... I, well, we don't... I You know, we don't watch it so much. Yeah. But uh, Grey's Anatomy, oh, yeah. that's the hospital that's oh. taking place at. You know, there's tons of Swedish immigrants. I have a good friend, Arnie, Arna. Who, who lives in Seattle, of Norwegian descent. So there were a lot of Scandinavians who came to settle in the area. Oh, that's very, that's yeah. super interesting. So well, anyway, we uh, found out that Mr. Osman, Albert, sailed from Glasgow, Scotland, in early April of 1913 on the steamship SS Columbia for New York City. His final destination was listed as Vancouver, British Columbia. And you can actually see the original shipping manifest at our website. Wow, very nice, man. Thank you. A little, yeah. little bit of cursory research. Well, t- <laughs> no, he he did a lot, folks. Really, he he dug into it to find this guy's uh, history. But ten years later, he completed some immigration paperwork for Canada from the U.S. And he was thirty now. And according to the Canadian Immigration Service, going to live with a friend in the small town of Bowser, British Columbia. That's kind right. Of, kind of my area. Not. I'm on. I'm more. Have you uh, heard of Bowser? Yeah, but you know what? I'm I live on the west. You actually had heard of it because I was. I'm super fascinated with Bowser. Well, uh, you hear a lot of little small towns that are that are fun to you know, Skookum, uh, all these uh, uh, Squim, all these little towns that are on the west coast. That's in Washington, it's, but it's, but it's all the west coast of it's it's the western side of Washington. I'm more from the eastern side of Washington and northern Idaho, east western Montana part of it. So I'm you, way inland. Do you remember the band Shadana? Yeah, of course. Yeah, the lead guy wasn't his name Bowser. Yeah, but that <laughs> that was. I think that's more of a dog nickname. You yeah. know, like I know yeah. there's going to be a lot he would, of people he do a, listen a, a, to our show yeah. that have no idea who Sean and uh, or anything else we're talking about. Really, <laughs> right? So anyway, Bowser was on the eastern coast of Vancouver Island, right at the edge of the Salish Sea, along the Strait of Georgia. And even today, Bowser only has 1,600 residents. So it must have reminded him of a larger version of home, though, because when you compare Arnesval, Sweden, where he was from, and Bowser, British Columbia, geographically on the map, they're nearly identical. They're both small. They're both situated at northern latitudes. They're both on eastern shores facing large bays. But his home in Sweden was actually smaller than Bowser. In 2010, Arnesval had less than 400 residents. So we're talking about a very small patch of land. Now, here's an interesting little aside. In the late 1930s, the Bowser Hotel was actually world famous for Mike the Dog. 
the owner of the hotel, he trained him to deliver beer bottles to tables, if you can believe that, collect money, and bring back change, which is kind of cool. Sadly, though, that hotel burned down in 1969. But if you look up the Bowser SO gas station on Google Earth in Street View and then just turn the camera around, you can see where it once stood. So now it's overgrown with unchecked flora and fauna, and apparently poor Mike the dog's grave is in there somewhere next to where the hotel stood before it burned. Now, Mike was killed crossing the highway to go to the general store where that SO now stands, probably to get some smokes after work. <laughs> but his death was mourned worldwide because who doesn't love a dog that brings you a beer? Uh, many, Come many on. people have tried to <laughs> train their dogs to do that yeah, successfully. Well, well, my friend Ar- uh, Arnie yeah. trained his dogs to, to pull open the refrigerator door. I, I don't know if he got to the beer stage, but they could open the door, and I think if he propped it there, they could grab the bottle. Well, sounds like this might be a tradition among the yeah, Swedes. The Pacific <laughs> lazy, lazy beer. Beer, beer loving Swedes, yes. <laughs> like, well, it's it's hard to know if Osman actually met Mike the dog since Mike's heyday was from 1933 to 41, and the only definitive year we can point to Osman being in Bowser was when he listed it as a last known residence in 1924. On some immigration paperwork we dug up. However, it's not much of a stretch to imagine him in there having a beer because Osman was an adventurer and that place would have been right up his alley. Yeah, that's right. He was a true wanderer. Uh, or as my uh, great-grandparents would say, he had the wanderlust. Yeah. So he referred to himself though, wait, as a wait, prospector. Wait, what? wait, what was their accent? Va- well, German. Oh, that was the yeah. wanderlust. That, like. that would be my grandmother's – I had a Danish uncle. Yeah, talking about Scandinavians. But he was, he was Danish – he was an uncle by marriage, but he was of Danish descent. Wow, so you actually married it. I'm a is from that general area, by the way. Yeah, so, you know, yeah. It's, uh, there's a lot going on there. I'm actually half Korean. Right. And then my dad, his, his parents, my grandparents on that side, grandfather's mostly Scottish. Grandmother is, uh, is German and uh, Polish and a little bit of Dutch. There's a lot going yeah, on there, but mostly German and Polish. Yeah, melting so, pot right here in I the know. studio. There you go. See, it's a it's a Benetton ad, but and, it, and that's <laughs> that used to be the old oh, joke, and nobody old, knows what that is no, now either. Stop so. with these ancient references. Sorry. Anyway, that was a thing when they say you had the von, the wanderlust, which means you were a restless soul. You took itinerant work. You enjoyed being out in the open, not confined or chained to a desk. You were that kind of person, and uh, that there's a lot of folks in my family that were just like that. Uh, but he referred to himself specifically as a prospector, a lumber worker, and a construction worker. You know, whatever was the job that he could get at the time, the, that that was the going gig. That's what he did. Pay the bills. Yeah, exactly. So in 1924, in fact, he told the U.S. Department of Labor that he was a grading contractor and filled out forms saying that he was immigrating to the U.S. permanently to work and live in Washington State. Uh, But looking at his history in the bigger picture, we're pretty sure he might have been saying that on the paperwork just to make it easier to convince the Labor Department uh, he wasn't coming to Washington for a short time because he found a job there. Which is what he was probably doing. <laughs> right. Yeah. You got to do what you got to do. Well, he, ma- he remained a Canadian citizen until he died at the age of 82 in 1975 in Fort Langley, British Columbia, about four hours east of Bowser. Okay. So there you go. He had no intention of leaving, but he did put that on the paperwork, which again, we have copies of that on yeah. our uh, website. We also have his World War One draft registration, which he registered as an alien, yeah. but he did, he did fill it out. He did say on there that he would prefer not to fight overseas. I prefer prefer a domestic uh, (laughs) conflict, sure. Um, So you know what? My my great-grandfather, I don't know if I've ever talked to you about him for us, but he was— Oh, yeah. Not the king. No, no. no, This was the The king's father? My grandfather. No, no, the king's wife's father. My my grandmother's—the queen's father. Okay. Uh, We have a thing in my family. We called my grandfather on my mother's side the king, and um, it was a nickname because he was very stately. He was a bank vice Uh, president and all that, but he was also a very funny man. But uh, no, this would be his wife's father, uh, my great-grandfather. 
He was born in North Carolina in August of 1904, so just 11 years after Albert Osman and seven years before Albert came to the U.S. And while I was digging around on Osman, I felt maybe I knew a little bit more about his generation than I might have because I knew my great-grandfather very well. He actually lived until he was 97. Wow. Passing away in July of 2001. So he was an amazing man. He was a former fire chief of Raleigh, North Carolina, actually. And his name was James Atlas Poole. That's a great middle name, by the way. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the best one. <laughs> but one of the things that I remember about Jim was that when he was very young, I'm not even sure the age. I'm saying like 15 or 16. It could have been younger. He literally ran away and joined the circus. I, and I mean, that's that's a cliche expression, but he yeah. actually ran yeah. away and joined, <laughs> joined <laughs> the circus. Well, did he have any, any, ta- any inherent talents? Uh, no, yeah. not that I know of. If he yeah. did, he never told us about it. But wow. um, and, and not too long after that, he attempted to sign up for the military, but he was too young and they figured it out and they wouldn't let him in. So eventually, like Osman, he became a grading contractor. Yeah. He took work wherever he could before making his way into the fire department in Raleigh. When he already knew all the street names for emergencies because he had paved most of them in a truck that he was fond of telling me he had to sit on a crate to drive. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. it's, you know, it's just crazy. But like yeah. even in his 80s, when he was picking me up from class at NC State University where I had started out at college, I, didn't gra- I wound up graduating from a different university, but mm. – he was he would come and get me because I didn't have a car and he I could name any little side street that I had gone to and used a payphone. Yes, this was before yeah. cell phones. Right. <laughs> yeah, I would come to any little side street like I, and sometimes I would purposefully like pick a weird little cul-de-sac or something yeah. and he'd be like, "I'll be right there." You know, eighty years old, you oh, can find he, the streets. Oh, really? Because yeah. he he yeah. still knew where every street was. Well, that yeah, that yeah. happens with the older generation because uh, there were fewer streets to know. And by you know, well, and as a fireman, they had to know. There yeah, were no exactly. computers. No, there was like they get the call, and it's like we have to know where it is. You're exactly right. That's yeah. a good point. Yeah. Yeah. My point about him is that he was an adventurer, and I have a sense for his personality, and it helped me feel a little bit like I kind of might understand. What Albert Osman was like, and what you said about the the Vandalust or whatever. <laughs> this well, was it's a different a, generation. Yeah. No, people. no, absolutely. But you know, it's funny. Uh, I also, my, I think one of my grandmothers. I can't remember if it was my grandmother or my grandfather, my on my father's side, but but he also graded roads then because you have to realize in that right. in that area there's a lot of roads. There, well, no, there's no roads. That's why <laughs> no, a lot of roads yeah. need to be built. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but and funny, like being a, a an old character like that, I you know he would drive down the middle of the road, the very center of the road, right. and you know, of course, the family's like, you know, Grandpa, what are you doing? And he's like, I built this road. I'm going to drive down the middle of it if I want to. And then, seriously, they would just and cars would have to go around him because that's it's. it's because he he'd done miles and miles of roads in the woods there. So. Until he was killed in a head-on collision. <laughs> People also didn't drive. I'm sure this is, you know, early on. So yeah, the cars right. didn't go it was as like fast. like three other cars, too. You, you bring up a good point because people back then were, I would guess – more adventurous. I mean, there's adventurous people now. I mean, there's people, you know, doing all kinds of crazy stuff, and usually it's it's uh, extreme sports. But imagine back then when you didn't have wingsuits and uh, and mount, you know riding your mountain bike down a, a volcano. People just they went on adventures. They they went out to Life the woods. What's the adventure? Exactly. Yeah. They explored new territories. They heard there was gold in Alaska or British Columbia, and uh, they went out looking for it. That's and right. these are people who, yeah, these are a different type of person. I think is what we're getting at. And Mr. Ost is one of those kind of folks he wasn't a desk jockey you know he's like no no i'm uh wherever there's work construction i and that's the thing he heard there was possibly still some gold mines up there in that british columbia area uh, close not too far from the water from the uh, pacific ocean yes and he's, i'm gonna you know what on a vacation this is what i like about him he is going to take a three-week vacation yes and that's his vacation he's that's gonna right. go do some prospecting relax go camping well he yeah. had been working for about a year Right now, and here's the first thing to know about this. 
this this tale takes place in 1924, but he didn't tell the story until 1957, over 30 years later. He kept it to wow. himself because he was afraid of being branded a nut, apparently. <laughs> well, but th- then some yeah. other folks started telling similar stories. He came out with his. Yeah. So now, it, originally, his story was published in a newspaper called the Agassiz Harrison Advance, and I'm again not sure I'm saying that right, but but that town is still there, Agassiz. Mm-hmm. Uh, that paper is now defunct, and the local library. Uh, that has archival issues of it in British Columbia, actually sent us some scans of the original article, which we we can't publish on their website because the, it's their property, but we will mm. have some excerpts from from the articles for you. The article mirrors the account of his story as told to one of the most famous Sasquatch researchers of all time, John Green. And we're actually going to take excerpts from this interview with Albert Osman in his book, Sasquatch, The Apes Among Us, published in 1978 by Hancock House. We have a link to the book on our website if you want to purchase it. Right. Now, the year is 1924, and Albert Ostman has been working steadily on a construction gig for over a year. And he was ready for a vacation, so he figured he could take about three weeks, and being an adventurer, he thought a little prospecting in the wilderness might be in order. So he made his way to Lund, British Columbia, also settled by Swedes, and in Lund, he hired a First Nations elder with extensive local knowledge to guide him to the mouth of the Toba Inlet, about 50 miles away. That's right. And while we haven't been there, I, I wish that we had the time and the money to go visit oh, all these places yeah. that we talk about, except for Greyfriars Kirkyard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going. You're, you got to come with oh, me. I'm going to be at the pub. Uh, you can come back and t- show me on your iPhone. All right. I'll go on the tour. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyway, it is stunningly beautiful. It, it's just the the photos of this place and where he was, just it's, it's unbelievable. And in 1924, it would have been pretty remote as well. And Albert had probably already heard dozens of tales of lost gold mines in this region. Yes, lost mines come up again and again in our story files, and it's really no wonder. Uh, mankind has been fascinated with the idea of them since they came into existence. How exactly does a mine get lost? Well, you, you, you know how it does. Uh, it, well, this is, we talked about this before. Geology changes over time, and geography, and people don't believe that, but it's like you can, you can lose track of something because it's living. It grows over. Uh, water changes courses. The Patterson and we're going to talk about this later, where the Patterson film was shot, they, that was lost until it was found in 2010 because of, of the brush overgrowing. I'm sure most of you know this, but I just want to be more specific yeah. on Forrest's behalf here. The Patterson-Gimlin film of Sasquatch, which is the most famous filmed piece of Sasquatch footage in the world. The Patterson-Gimlin film is to Bigfoot research what the Zapruder film is to the JFK conspiracy. Yes. So just think of it that way. It's right. kind of like... But so what yeah. you're saying is that point that where that was shot, they couldn't find it for a long time, right? Yeah, apparently where supposedly he shot the film in Northern California about 30 miles uh, south of the Oregon border there. Yes. Uh, people couldn't find you – know, of course, Bluff Creek. Yeah, exactly. Bluff Creek. People could not find that. Orleans, California is the closest, is the closest town, town yes. but it's maybe 30 miles uh, northwest of there or something. Yes, and we actually have the exact latitude and longitude of the Patterson-Gimlin site on our yeah. website. If you want to just take a look at it in Google Earth, it's, it's pretty neat to check out. Exactly. But no, my point – the larger point I'm trying to make is that people who have buried their own treasures have lost them. That's right. <laughs> and they can't find them again because right. the markings they had laid out, they're suddenly gone and they don't recognize the geography. So that's – yeah. And then so, there's, there's yeah. other issues too for people who actually – haven't even left them that long. There are folks that aren't very good at managing their assets. <laughs> <laughs> that happens quite a bit as well. There yeah. are people who die after they've made their discovery, but before they've developed it properly. Yeah. They 
twist their ankle, they fall down a cliff, they get eaten by a bear. Yeah, never never heard from again. Yeah, they get stabbed by someone. They uh, local indigenous peoples remove them from the earth. (laughs) (laughs) Sort of in a way way of speaking. Yes, yes. Uh, But no, there's some great lost the blue bucket mine. There's some great the lost Dutchman mine. Well, yes, heard of a lot of great lost mine stories. Anyway, the point is, strange things happen when untold riches come into the picture. Exactly. So Ostman, like everyone, had probably heard of a lot of tales of lost mines in Western Canada before he even set out on this trip. And although he doesn't say that he heard them ahead of time in his account of the story to John Green, we know he went on that trip to go prospecting. Therefore, he was either hoping to chance across some gold, or more likely he was trying to rediscover some that had already been found. Well, according to him, when he got connected with his First Nations guide, and by the way, we're using the term First Nations on purpose. In the original article, they referred to him as an Indian, but we're trying to be uh, more politically sensitive. Well, you know, I, I grew up around a lot of them, and, and they yeah. refer to themselves as Indians. However, the yes. younger generation, some do, some don't. So yes. in deference to that. Well, yeah, yes, yeah. exactly. Okay. Just trying to be respectful. Right. And anyway, this gentleman told him the story of a lost mine in the area. That was apparently only known to some drunk guy who would <laughs> well, come down. The best stories start that way. Yeah, yes, he would yeah. come down out of the mountains with a bag of gold and blow it in all the saloons before disappearing yeah. <laughs> back into the woods, only to return flush again in a week or so. Naturally, but that was the thing that was suspicious because he always came back with more. Yes. But of course, eventually, this guy went up for some more gold and he never came back. And the First Nations elder told Ostman that some thought he'd actually been killed by a Sasquatch. All right, so here we go down the Bigfoot <laughs> hole. So Ostman didn't know what Sasquatch was, and the elder told him they are big people living in the mountains with hair all over their bodies. According to Ostman, he didn't believe in it. He thought maybe a long time ago, but surely not in 1924. These are modern times, <laughs> yeah. you know. But the elder told him, and I quote, there may not be many, but they still exist, end quote. Yeah, exactly. They, the tales still abound. Yes. Anyway, so it sounds like the First Nations guy was pretty resolute in his opinion that they were out there. Exactly. And how many times in history have we seen newcomers be dismissive of what locals have to say about an area when, they, when the newcomers first get there? <laughs> well, yeah. You know, it's got every survival book will tell you the best way to survive, you do what the locals do because they know there's been generations of them surviving. Right. And so you don't dismiss what they have to say because they know more than you. Right. You've not been there. You don't know. But you come with a lot of hubris because I'm from the big city. And it's like, no, no, no. You're not going to survive very long. Yeah. You know, that's, not, that's yeah. actually a lot like when a new writer gets to Saturday Night Live. <laughs> you, do, you, do, what, you keep your head down and do what the, uh, that's do what what the elders do. But yeah. they don't always. Uh, and the ones that don't, don't last very long. Well, yeah. The, 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 uh, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Wow, that's great. Where do you, where, I've never you, heard that before. That's great. Are you are you putting me on? No, you've I never haven't. heard that. No, I love oh, it. Oh, dude, come on. That's yeah. I know. Okay. I'm a root. Anyway, <laughs> all right. So, right. Osman goes on to tell this super detailed story of his trip after breaking off with his guide, right down to his exact provisions that he took, which he was able to remember 30 years later because before sitting down with Green to write the book. Osman went through his stuff looking for anything connected to that one particular expedition and actually found his provision list, uh, his shopping list for that trip. So this is what I love, too. So he's carrying an 80-pound pack. Now, that's that's pretty heavy. Yeah, that's yeah. hardcore. Again, he's a badass. Hiking yeah. up some pretty steep inclines at high elevation, so less oxygen. You get tired quicker. He said he had to rest a lot, which I, I believe, sure. Yeah, like every uh, hour, I think. Yeah, it's, it's really hard work. Well, eventually, he gets to a good spot to camp, a nice flat area where some shallow digging reveals water, uh, that, you know, springs that you yes. find in the ground. Okay, so he estimates that he was about a thousand feet above sea level with an amazing view over the Georgia Strait. 
and he made camp a little early so he had time to scout and prospect a bit, but he didn't really find anything. So the next day he sets out again. That's right. And so he, he does this a few days, camping and hiking and exploring. I mean, frankly, it sounds like an amazing trip. Uh, when you, Like I said, when you look at photos of this area, it's so beautiful. But so now we're a few days into the trip and he finds this super choice campsite and makes camp again at what he himself calls, in quotes, a classy setup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the 20, sure. But now anyone who's ever been camping knows that feeling you get when you get either the best campsite at the campground or if you're free range camping someplace that is just so choice you feel like you want to build a cabin there and Mm. that's the sense you get about how albert felt about this particular campsite all the things lined up. I think the, you know, the the flatness of it, the shelter. I think it was, be- was it between two trees? Yes, that, a yeah. couple cypress trees. So it's offering a little bit of shelter. But anyway, he was going to make this his home for the next couple of weeks. So he's he's there for a, b- a good stretch. So when he gets it all set up, a place to hang his pack and a nice fireplace to cook at, and he, he beds down. Uh, when he gets up the next morning, he notices, though, that it seems like his stuff has been messed with. And he says he's a heavy sleeper. So it didn't surprise him that he, you know, when he didn't wake up from from the noise or whatever. But being a problem solver, he loaded his rifle up that night before he went to bed and put it under the edge of his sleeping bag, just just in case, you know. Right. But he was convinced that a porcupine, or is he, and I love this term here, old-timers term, a porky, and I think he mentions later on a good porky stew. Yes. Uh, but, but he thought a porcupine had been in his stuff, and uh, he knew that they like leather. They, I think they like to chew on it, and they like the smell of it. So he put his shoes down in the bottom of his sleeping bag, and he went to sleep, which that sounds kind of uncomfortable, but th- but that's what he did. Hey, he was a tough guy. So, <laughs> well, but... the, no, you, actually, you do that. Uh, I've heard of you, you, put, you put sticks in the ground, you put your boots on top, so nothing nasty can get crawl in, like oh, scorpions yeah, or anything scorpions. down south anyway. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so he gets up the next day. His pack, which he had put up on the pole, has been emptied out. It it was turned upside down, actually. Mm. But strangely, it's still on the pole, right? Okay, that's weird. His pancake flour and a half pound of prunes (laughs) were gone. But importantly, not his bag of salt. Well, somebody watching their uh, their salt level, but but you know, but also conscious of their regularity. That's nice. Yeah, but prunes last. That's the point. You, yeah. You'll hear that his his hard tack, his you know, rye king hard tack. Uh, these are all things that old timers used to take because they they last. They don't rot, and you can they, they'll keep you alive. They're not. It's not a, a fancy backpacker meal by any means, but uh, they'll keep you alive. Right. Well, anyway, now he knows something is up because the porkies love salt. Okay. Now, and they would have they would have gotten into the salt. A lot, actually, a lot of animals do. Deer will uh, lick a wall that has minerals on it. Yeah, you'll, yeah, you'll see that often. So, what could it be, though, if it's not a porky? We're going to get to say porky a lot during this episode, right? <laughs> even when it's no longer pertinent. <laughs> Just, it's so fun, and it's it's fun to see it written out as well. Anyway, he figures it's not a porky or a bear either, because everyone knows bears destroy stuff, yeah. and his stuff wasn't destroyed. No, okay. So this is going on though three nights in a row, I believe, right? Yeah. Something has been coming into his camp, and he cannot figure it out. So he starts doing that thing where he's taking a visual inventory of exactly where everything is, because when you're in the scenario, especially alone, uh, it's just human nature to think that you might be imagining things right. You're not. You don't have anybody there to con- to confer with. So he's making sure he memorizes exactly how everything is arranged. So he's getting ready for war here, or just you know, whatever's coming into his camp messing his stuff up. So he says it looked like it might rain that night. So he put his shoes down in his sleeping bag again, along with his rifle. Yes, now the rifle is now actually inside the sleeping bag. Yes, that's an important uh, point there. Yes. Along with a knife, which he calls a sheath knife, which it just means it's a fixed-bladed knife. 
in, in a leather sheath probably, but it's inside the sleeping bag. That's important to, to remember. Yes. Okay, so he drove his prospecting pick into the trunk of a cypress tree so he could easily reach it if something woke him up. But he wasn't planning on going to sleep, was he? Uh, no, but he did fall asleep. <laughs> yeah, that, that happens to all of us. Yeah. Okay, well, well, that he did, only to be awakened by something picking him up inside the sleeping bag. That's right. And he said he was in such a state of deep sleep that when this happened, <laughs> and I know this feeling. Yeah. I actually couldn't even remember where he was. Like, he, <laughs> yeah. was, he forgot that he was on a camping trip. Yeah. All that, but eventually it came back to him. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm on a prospecting trip. This is my <laughs> vacation. Yeah. Right. Yeah, okay. So, all right. So now he's inside his sleeping bag bag, trying to figure out what the hell is going on, running through all of the possibilities. Uh, he's in a super uncomfortable position, thinking maybe it's an avalanche of some kind. You know, that's the natural first thing you think of. You're being tossed around. Yeah. Uh, but then remembering that there was no significant snow around his campsite. Then he thinks maybe he's been thrown over a horse because he can feel that whatever's got him is walking, you know, but he can't see anything. And not only that, his sleeping bag is super hot and he's getting pretty upset at this point. <laughs> like, I would have been yeah. Yeah, upset. I think yeah. I would have been upset to start with. But now here's the good news. He's got his knife yeah. and his rifle in there. So why doesn't he cut his way out or maybe take a shot? Maybe taking a shot isn't a good idea. Well, his body was in such a way that he was basically seated inside the sleeping bag and the knife was underneath him. And that's the thing. I had to read this uh, several times to get a, a yeah, mental picture Yeah, it took me a while to it, get all this together. What he's too. doing. And I believe yeah. what happened, he couldn't get to it. That's the problem is that his boots and I think his knife now, you said, yeah. are under his tucked in feet. And I believe the, the soles of his feet maybe are, are facing up. So yeah. it's pretty uncomfortable. And he's in a bag and he's being jostled around. Right. Okay. So he had no problem getting to the rifle, though. And he held on to it, but he wasn't ready to fire it in the dark from inside the sleeping bag, especially having no idea what was outside the sleeping bag. Okay, so the one thing that he did notice, however, he could feel what felt like his pack and the cans on the back of it bumping into him from outside the sleeping bag. So whatever had him had grabbed his stuff, too. That's right. So now he's, he's inside this thing, bobbing up and down, burning up in the dark, and according to him, doing this for what he estimated to be three hours. Ugh. And so when whatever was carrying him was going up and down steep hills, climbing over rough terrain and breathing very heavily even coughing some. Mm. According to him, and I think when he heard the cough specifically, he began to think that this was what his guide had told him about, a Sasquatch. And this thing is not taking a whole lot of care to provide him with a comfortable trip. Uh, think about it. A yeah. grown man being picked up in a bag in a sack like a kitten. Yes. And he's being tossed around. Okay. Yeah. So at times, it's actually putting the sleeping bag on the ground for steep descents and dragging it across rocks and terrain. I think whatever it was, was trying to keep him alive, of course. Yeah. Not bashing him around. Well, this was definitely no porky. No. <laughs> but eventually, <laughs> this thing puts him down on an incline, actually. And then he rolls down the hill a little bit. Door-to-door uh, -door service. Yeah. <laughs> and again, you have to kind of picture what's happening here uh, before being able to poke his head out and get some air. Uh, although he said there was a small opening in the bag during the trip. I think I think I read because uh, the hand, the, the large hand, couldn't quite. Uh, couldn't quite close it. So he could see a little bit of a sky and get some a little bit of air because I think he said he would have suffocated had, it not, uh, had that not happened. That's right. Okay, so he heard it drop his pack on the ground as well. But he couldn't even get out of the sleeping bag because his legs were numb. So then he heard some kind of talking that he could not understand. All right, hold the phone. Yeah. Let's, let's back up a little bit yeah. here. We're going to get into this in more detail after the story is done. But just quickly, we're establishing two things that you don't normally hear of in a Bigfoot Sasquatch story, right? Kidnapping and communication via something that sounds like talking. All right, so now he's out of the sleeping bag. His feet are sore, but he's got his rifle. 
He still got that. Yeah. So his one foot had actually been jammed into his hobnail boots, Ugh. which I had to look this up. <laughs> yeah. These are boots with hobnails or spikes driven into the bottom of them like cleats for hiking. Yeah. And so well a lot of them a lot of them aren't really sharp. They're 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 but they're imagine yeah. uh like metal studs yes. for traction. Yes, yeah, exactly. Not something you want to be resting no. up against for 3 hours in a as a, while you're a sack of potatoes. You're going to chafe. While you're yeah. In a Bigfoot <laughs> yeah. Uber service. <laughs> yeah. Un, 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 unwanted, yeah. yeah. Unwanted Uber. Uh anyway, so apparently at this point he says and I quote what you fellows want with me? <laughs> My other, I love the use of the word "fellows" yeah. because it's it, it is archaic. But yeah. uh, uh, what you fellows want with? I just can't, I can just imagine and them going. Oh, you know. yeah. Anyway, yeah. okay. So now though, the sun is coming up. So again, this is taking place during the night. Yes. Uh, or, or you know, probably early morning, three or four o'clock in the morning. Now the sun is coming up, and he remembered looking at his watch, and it was four twenty-five a.m. Very early, still uncomfortable. But by this reasoning, he must have been grabbed around sometime like one thirty in the morning right. uh, from his camp and then carried three hours to where they were now. Because now the light is showing uh, the pre-dawn hours, you know, that, that twilight coming up. And uh, he could make out four distinct creatures. Four. Right. Yes. Okay. So to him, this is like a family. He actually called them the old man, the old lady, a young boy, and a young girl. But he felt like the young ones were afraid of him. Uh, he also sensed that the adult female was was irritated with the adult male for bringing him there. Which boy, that that sounds like a familiar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Like, this is what, a very human what situation. What have you done yeah. now? Yeah, yeah. What did you bring home? Yeah. Uh, but but looking around, he figures out now that he's in a box canyon, and that there's only one way in and out. It's surrounded by very high. I, I don't know if they were technically cliffs or big, you know, very high hills. And then there was this exit that had an eight foot entrance about at the bottom. It was maybe twenty feet wide up at the top. That was the only way in or out. The area inside the canyon was, he said, eight to 10 acres. Uh, it's kind of the perfect hideout for yeah. a band of outlaws. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, yeah, there's a, there's a place in Joshua Tree just like that called, I think, Hidden Valley, uh-huh. where, where uh, rustlers used to kind of hide out because it's kind of sheltered from view. Yeah, uh, there's only one way in and out. It's perfectly defensible. Now, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but what I'm saying, though, is eight to 10 acres is kind of a large area. Yeah, it is big. Yeah, so yeah. that kind of level And he had, some, he had some freedom in there, and I guess he wound up taking his stuff and moving it over against kind of a wall, and he made his own campsite within his little prison. Okay, so at this point, he realizes more prunes and some macaroni are missing along with the full box of shells that he had, uh, rifle shells, right. uh, but everything else is intact. But his utensils were back at his original site. So now he's wandering around this inescapable area getting water. He sees a spot kind of up the little valley there where it looks like it might be likely and he's going to dig for it, okay? Uh, but all the time, the the young ones are watching him from behind some bushes and or they're going through his stuff back at back where his pack is. He had also observed that they had woven some kind of blankets out of cedar bark with dry moss inside of them. So they were actually like stuffed blankets. Mm. So mm. anyway, not a whole lot transpires that first day. At one point, he actually gives the young one like an empty snuff box or a can or something to play with. And just so you know, uh, snuff, the, uh, from what he's describing here, because I, there's there's really two versions. I think the, the old-timey snuff, which you heard uh, Baron Munchausen earlier uh, describe, that's really a powdered tobacco yes. uh, that people use. You would take a pinch of it and then inhale, <laughs> like an like a earlier and more probably lethal form of cocaine, you know, because <laughs> it, it'd give you a buzz, but that's how you took it. Uh, I think more what he's talking about is like cut leaf tobacco, like Copenhagen or your, you know, your, you know, back in the... 
the day in high school guys would take a dip. Dip. Yeah, yep. exactly. You know, yep. and it, that's Copenhagen. So it's it's still uh, leafy, but you put that in your cheek between your cheek and gum. Yes. Anyway, that's just yeah. So that's what he means when I think when he says snuff. Yes. Okay, so the next day, though, uh, he decides he's going to find a way out. He wants to get out of there. So he gets his gear together, loads his rifle, and heads towards the exit of the canyon. And the old man holds his hand up and says, nah, nah, you're getting out out of there. That's hilarious. Uh, So Albert points at the exit like, I I need to get out of here. At which point, though, he says the old man said something to him that sounded like, soka, soka, or... Soka, soka. I don't know. <laughs> what yeah, they, whatever. Bigfoot. What are you yeah. going to base that impression on? Yeah, no, <laughs> there's tree. No, you've heard more of the Les Stroud kind of, yeah. oh, the screaming or where yeah. the vocalizations. That's what modern Bigfoot hunters uh, call it, right? The, uh, yeah, the vocalizations. vocalizations. Yeah, those are scary. Yeah, there's other things called tree knocking, but imagine a big, you know, a big booming voice. This thing's probably over seven feet tall. Yeah. The way he describes them. Anyway, so soka, soka. Now, he has a rifle after all, but he's fairly convinced the most it would do is make the old guy angry. Right. You know, like, a, like a big grizz, <laughs> yeah. a big grizzly bear. You better you better hit him in a vital spot or he's just going to make him mad. Yeah. Okay. So he also seemed kind of adverse to killing him. He didn't want to kill the guy. Look, yeah. it, or guy or Bigfoot, whatever it was, yeah. he was adverse to it. So, uh, so he backed down. That's right. And actually, he has another sort of bigger problem. Well, I don't know if it's bigger, technically, but, <laughs> yeah. but he's not really sure where he is. That's a big problem. Yeah. 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 Sure. <laughs> he, he, he thinks he was about 25. According to him, he was about 25 miles northeast of the Toba Inlet when he was grabbed. And he thought he had been carried maybe another 25 miles in the oh, middle of the night. Yeah. You know, uh, Scott, 25 miles is a long way to drive. Yeah. <laughs> as yeah. Chris Rock said in his, uh, his opening monologue not too long ago. But like, yeah, it's it, 50 miles. Or as he said, like, you call a friend up, like, it, you had come 50 miles to get me. Like, well, you better find another way of transportation because <laughs> I'm not. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. that's a long ways to eat for him to hike, one, yeah. to get into that backcountry, and two, for him to be carried. Yes. Okay. So keep that in mind. Yeah. So now he's interacting with him, and he's and he's making up a little uh, dipping cups uh, that they can dip and drink water out of. He he explains this, which is kind of fun. And yeah, he the was process. Like, yeah, he's a little make pro- a little handle out of a branch. Yeah. Or yeah. Well, you know, it's like somebody's grandfather. Let, let me show you how to how to do this little handy trick here. Uh, but he's he's using his empty tins that he had his food in. So that's what he's making these kind of these little gifts for. And he yeah, gives, and they he, were enjoying yeah. them. Yeah, exactly. They, he well, said they, it was they, almost like they he could tell that they were happy when they found out they could dip water. Well, that's another interesting thing that, you know, maybe we'll talk about later is that uh, for a primate, they don't really seem to have any tools because they're kind of intelligent in one sense. In another sense, uh, they don't have a lot of things that they've made. Well, he also, but he did say, too, that he felt like this place was not a base, but a stopover, someplace that they right. came to yeah. to get this grass, which they wind up bringing him later, that has, like, these sweet roots or whatever. Yeah, exactly. He said the young one could climb like a mountain goat and would bring him this wild grass with long, sweet roots that uh, that they, he would eat. And he, they said it was kind of a satisfying, like, a delicious taste to it. Right. So then he, he uh, takes a dip of snuff in yeah. front of the boy, who apparently says something like, ook. Okay. <laughs> Ook. Uh, yes. Again, that's uh, – we're going to talk about that later. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and the the boy now is trying to get his old man, his dad, I guess, yeah. uh, to try to, to get him to try and share some of the snuff. Try it out. Okay. Yeah. Now, and Albert says at this time he, he doesn't want to do it that way. It occurs to him, according to him, that if he can get the old man to eat a full container of snuff, it might kill him. And And <laughs> – <laughs> and then he, quote, wouldn't be guilty of murder, end quote, <laughs> well, which, yeah. by the way, shows that he thought of these creatures as human or humanoid. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's the thing. He, he's he's also pretty respectful of nature. And, uh, you know, he's not a he's not a ruffian. Uh, he's a gentleman. But also, yeah, he's getting, you know, watching these creatures behave in a very, you know, uh, human primate kind of fashion. 
I think he's feeling some kind of bond between himself and these and these creatures here. So let's talk specifics now. How how big were the how big were these guys? Okay, well, according to him, the old lady, <laughs> the mom, I guess, was somewhere between forty and seventy. So that's a pretty wide wide yeah, range. It's hard there. to tell, I guess. However, uh, he was saying that she was over seven feet tall. Uh, so he's thinking that she weighs probably in the neighborhood of five to six hundred pounds. So that's a it's a big lady. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So the but the young fellow he says was about seven feet tall and maybe weighed three hundred pounds. Okay, very large creatures. Okay, right. And Osman thought the boy was maybe eleven to eighteen years old, something in that range. You know, a juvenile. Okay? Right. So he said they had wide jaws, a narrow forehead that slanted up around the back, kind of like a cone. And short, thick hair everywhere, except on the soles of their feet and inside their hands and the top part of their nose and eyelids. So kind of gorilla-like, I exactly. guess. Yeah. yeah, and he said the old lady had wide hips. I wouldn't be telling her that. But yeah, yeah, no. And right. a goose-like walk. <laughs> yeah. And he actually even made some jokes about how she could be spiffed up with a brazier. <laughs> that was, well, that was pretty funny. So the modern uplifting brazos, which, yeah. which are quite uh, pleasing to look at, would yeah. do her some good. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. But now the old man was close to eight feet tall, he thought, with Ugh. huge muscles and a barrel chest. He said he had long forearms and his fingernails were like chisels. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And, and another interesting thing that he observed, he said one day he spent some time when the, when the young one was – the young guy was – or the young boy was sitting down with his feet so that he could see him. He said he spent some time looking at him and he said they looked padded like a, like a dog's foot is. Yeah, humans can do that as well. There's a local Southern California – he's a survivalist tra- – he does survival training and he calls himself Aberman as an Aboriginal man. Yeah. But he goes around barefoot. Year round, yeah, and you know, and his 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 thinking is, I, I saw him in the news once, and his his thinking is like, well, you know, if you get captured, what's the first thing you take? They take your shoes because you can't make it very far. It's like, well, I don't need shoes, yeah. But anyway, I don't not to get off on a, on a barefoot thing. Right, but I got right, several right. other tales of of uh, you uh, humans can get used to that and almost become hobbit like. And what they can endure with bare feet. Anyway, yeah, so he's, he noticed, though, that they were, like, rough and, and thickly padded that that's, you know, didn't bother them. Yeah, exactly. Okay, right. So this is all behavioral stuff, okay? And he says that he never saw them cook or eat meat while he was there. And one thing that's interesting, I mean, this whole story is interesting, of course, but it's that Albert eventually built a fire and got his coffee pot boiling. And that's one thing I like, too, because the first thing he thinks of is like, I'd like some hot coffee. Right. I I really wanted some. Yes, I'm in this very strange situation. And uh, who knows, I might be killed. But darn it, I'm going to have some hot coffee for breakfast. Yeah. Okay. So he makes no mention of any kind of reaction from then at the sign of fire, which I found interesting because... Well, no, I, you know, who knows? I mean, maybe they've seen it elsewhere, uh, spying yeah, I on... I, I don't know. It's super odd to me. I mean, if if they could make or made fires regularly, that would certainly have been told in other incidents of sightings, even to yeah. this day. And, yes. and it would make it a lot easier to find them <laughs> in the woods if they were, like, building fires everywhere. Right. They'd probably be burning things down sometimes. And yeah. I, you'd think they'd be afraid of it also. I mean, maybe it's something that they would know as, as a, from a lightning strike or something. You know, and I'm obviously I'm making a lot of leaps here. But yeah. On the other hand, if they've been watching humans for a while, maybe they've seen fire, they're used to it, they don't care about using it personally. Yeah. And, but it's still strange to me that he says he made a fire and he's just, there's just, he's not mentioning any kind of reaction at all from them about that. Because, I mean, couldn't you see them as perceiving that as a threat? Oh, yeah. Well, look, every animal... Remember, or being remember, afraid of it. Yeah. Well, yeah. as they say in the Alien, the first one, it's like pretty much every animal is afraid of fire. I mean, that's... But that's what I'm saying is that 
I, yes, if you want to go that route and say like they'd been spying on humans, they saw them making fire and and uh, and having a cookout, and so they weren't real afraid of it. Or maybe they were chased out by you know there's forest fires that happen naturally right. from lightning strikes. It wasn't maybe totally foreign to them. However, I I would think though if they saw this uh, this old timer. I, I'm sorry, he wasn't really an old-timer back yeah, then. Yeah. Uh, he was a young man. Yeah. But if they saw uh, this man back then with the capability to just produce fire, they'd be like, I think they'd be a little curious, like, hey, how he do that? Right. Ook, ook, suka, suka. You know, so he's just, oh, <laughs> I, don't have much of their, I don't have much of their vocabulary <laughs> in hand. Oh, my gosh. My point being is that I agree with you in that if they saw this guy, I'm sure they'd be like, hey, what are those little sticks with the red ends on them that seem to produce fire so easily? Could I have some? Yeah. However, though, he never said that they, he saw them eating meat, which is a big... No, but he didn't a, say that he yeah. didn't think they ate meat. He just right. said he didn't see it. He didn't see it. And it, again, yeah. if this place is a stopover, first of all, if you believe any of this, yeah. right. <laughs> you yeah. have to preface every statement with that. Uh, um, but maybe there's just no meat available in this little valley or yeah. whatever. But, so. but no, and he thought that they were uh, surviving mostly on those uh, tender uh, roots right. that were so delicious. And, and, and that's maybe, why they gave them to him, because to make him taste sweeter. Yeah. Well, <laughs> okay, now who's getting... <laughs> you're imagining the giant uh, pot, the cauldron with the boiling uh, yeah. with the carrots. Like a Bugs Bunny situation. Yeah, but you gotta have the other vegetables in. But no, he thought that they, maybe they were in the area, like you say, to be kind of nomadic because that was when and where these shoots were growing. They they moved there uh, temporarily to capitalize on that. Right. So that's, okay. But yes, no, I totally agree with you that there's some things that he does not talk about which don't make much sense. Yeah, okay. right. All right, so now we come to the escape, uh, <laughs> well, which is, in my opinion, laughable. Well, but, it's a little comical, sure. But it's also intriguing. Yes. All right, and, and this is the absurdest part of this tale. According to Osman, he made a big show of how tasty his morning coffee was, <laughs> right? And so yeah. then he took out some snuff from a brand new full box mm. and you know partook, and then he was about to close it when the old man reached for the box. And Osman was, get this, apparently afraid. He had forgotten about his plan to kill him by letting him have it all. Yeah. According to, the, this is another, a little bit of an inconsistency in his story. But it's like, he was apparently afraid that the old man was going to hog it all. He didn't want him to take all his snow. Oh, he was down to four boxes. He, right. he had a long trip back, remember? Yeah, right. Yeah. And you can't go without snuff. So he yeah. held the box thinking the old man would take a pinch. But instead, the old man grabs the box empties the whole thing into his mouth, <laughs> swallowing it yeah. in one gulp. Uh, and then uh, apparently right after that, he licked the inside of the box. Well, yeah, it's, you got to get every delectable morsel. Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So as you can imagine, the old man, Father Sasquatch here, totally loses it. Okay, so he's, his eyes... Now, listen to this description, though, yeah. because, yeah, uh, I've actually seen this happen, not with a Sasquatch, but with a human. Okay, yeah, okay. so <laughs> his eyes roll back in his head, and he's looking at the sky, and he got sick as hell, and then he grabbed what was left of the coffee, which is now cold, thank goodness. Although I don't think it would matter. Remember uh, Albino Bob? Yeah. Judge Ray just drinks the coffee off from the fire. Yeah. <laughs> he was a, yeah. Which was now cold, oh, oh, thankfully, uh, but he drank all of that super fast, gulped that down, along with the grounds, which obviously did not do yeah. anything yeah. for him <laughs> at that at that instant. Uh, but then he apparently stuck his head between his legs and rolled away from Hostman <laughs> doing some kind of weird somersaults, which... <laughs> 
Yeah, it's starting to sound like an alley oop cartoon yeah. from the, from days past. But he does these weird somersaults and starts squealing like a stuck pig. Is yeah. or yeah, as Ostman says. Uh, so Ostman grabs his rifle, intending to defend himself if the old man came after him. But instead, the old man took off. Uh, running for the spring because he wanted water, which exactly. now that makes sense because yeah, you're, yeah, like he's looking for relief. So yeah. now Osman is is rapidly getting his gear together. He's decided he's going to make his break for it, and the young boy is over with his mom, like screaming. The mom is upset, and he heads for the exit from the canyon. And the old lady starts after him, and he turns and fires his rifle at the rocks over her head. And I guess it scared her pretty bad, and she oh, yeah. went back inside the canyon. At this point, Albert is going like crazy, like anyone would, of course, if they were afraid they were being chased by an eight hundred pound creature that can cover 25 miles in three hours okay in the middle of the night don't yeah. mind you yeah. okay so osman kept going until he could rest where he had a defendable high position you know high ground that's where you want to be you can see things coming up towards you okay and then he rested for two hours before moving out around 3 p.m that's what that's what he says around the time i think he's well he's still got his watch yeah yeah right? exactly yeah, there you go. so now and after camping one night he makes his way out we're sort of summing up the escape yeah. you can read this in more detail on our website if you want but he makes his way out and he winds up here hearing some logging equipment in the distance, and he finds a camp. He tells him that he was a prospector who got lost. He doesn't say anything about his experience. Uh, he doesn't want them to think he's crazy. So from the camp, he winds up hiking out, and he makes it back to civilization, and that's pretty much the end of his tale. All right, so I don't even know where to begin with this. The first thing I'm going to say about this, <laughs> yeah, uh, one of the things we talk about on our Patreon page, actually, is how, uh, which isn't up yet but will be soon, is, is how you and I always used to talk these kind of stories. Whenever we would get together, we would talk about weird stories. And I think oh, I told exactly. you a long time ago, before we were even talking about the podcast, yeah. about the Albert Osman story. Yeah. And I love this story. I, yeah. I don't care that it is patently absurd. Well, no. Well, <laughs> I mean, it has. There's some things about it that I mean, it's highly entertaining to me. Yeah. I love just the way it feels. I love his background. I love how he reminds me of my great grandfather. It's just, the, of course, you know. No, but this is. But Scott, you've hit on a good point, which I really want to relay to. There might look. We might have a segment of our audience that says, why are you, why are you doing this? This is ludicrous. There are you know? people that I, yeah. I predict there are people that aren't even going to click on this episode because the word <laughs> Bigfoot is in the title. Well, that's, you know, look, whether you believe that or not, uh, what I'm getting at and is that. their loss. Well, <laughs> this is, this is our, one of our, our, our relaxed and conversational types of shows here. This is the kind of stuff that we found to be fun to talk about. Yes. Because Scott and, you know, yeah, if you read the Patreon page copy, we're not just constantly debating JFK, like back into the left, back <laughs> into the left. What about Clay? You know, it's not, it's not all that serious. We don't need to find the answers. Sometimes we can just enjoy the story for what it is. That's right. And that's kind of what I wanted to say. That's what this is. It's probably a tall tale. Okay. I'll just, yeah. I'll just say, but, but we can still look at it critically. Well, it's, and let's, know. let's talk about that a little yeah. bit. It does seem on the surface like a tall tale. This is the thing to note about it, though. Green, John Green, who wrote yeah. the books, all the books, he's actually known as Mr. Sasquatch, and he is a resident of that area. He lives near Agassiz in British Columbia and is still alive to this day. Oh, well, yeah. And, he's in his 80s. Yeah. Think, yeah. And I don't even know how many books. He's written so many books about it. But one of the things that he said was that when he interviewed Osman, there was no – not a moment where he felt like he was being lied to. And this is yeah. a fairly critical man. This is not a – this is a man who is interested in Sasquatch, but he's not just an automatic believer in every story that he hears. Yeah. And and Osman also signed a, what a solemn declaration, which is a mm -hmm. sort of like an affidavit in Canada where he was like, you know, I, I swear that this is all true. He told yeah. the story over and over. He was evaluated by a couple of different types of experts. None of whom found that he was 
blatantly lying. No, I mean, they, they couldn't get on board with kind of the yes. things he was saying. However, they could not specifically disprove anything that he mentioned. Right. But, but I think one note, though, that's kind of important is that he claims that, yes, this is, I can swear to all this, but only really the Sasquatch encounter part of it, because the rest of the trip, which he is so specific about in his, in his descriptions, if you go to read it, which is odd because he's, yeah, he's very descriptive, but I think he says that that may be some other trips patched together details of, of things he climbed or yes. the conditions, uh, because he, you know, he'd been out in the wilderness all his life. Yes. But you have to remember, this is close to 30 years later after this happened. So that was, that happened in 1924. This is 1957? That's right. Okay. Yeah. So look, it's your, your memory gets fuzzy, even though he had the shopping list, but so he basically, he had had dug up some things that helped spur his memory, which he didn't, you know, to, to try and remember everything. But he said that parts of the, parts of the information about the trip itself might be an amalgamation. Because he had taken so many trips like that. Now, and this is important because there's a significant problem with his trip. And this is not something that you would know just by listening to his story. But one of the other things I love to do, I'm kind of a cartography nut. I love to get – and when we start telling these (laughs) stories, I love to go onto Google Earth and just dive down, look at these places, find the exact points where things happen. That's why a lot of times – if you go to our our postings for the shows, you'll always see a map. If we have a location we can Mm -hmm. give you, we will. And I'll spend a lot of time – Zooming down with Google – because Google Earth is so amazing, and oh, we, yeah. we obviously are not a show that has the budget. Because if we had the budget, I'll tell you what, we'd be up there right now. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Doing yeah. Recording this remotely from uh, one of the mountains in the area or whatever, but we, we can't do that. So vicariously, I'm, I'm zooming in on Google. I'm trying to get a feel for the territory. I'm looking at pictures that people have taken as they've been there. And one of the things that – and it's not – this isn't something I caught. This is something that – many, many people caught sort of very early on was that the distance between where he said he started and where he wound up coming out, which we didn't mention the specifics of, but it was a, um, I believe it was the salmon, the salmon leg of a particular inlet. Yeah. Well, Toba, much in- further south. Toba Inlet. Toba's where he started, but yes. there was a different inlet that he came out at. Yes, correct. The problem is they're 60 miles apart. Over very rough terrain, or as he calls yeah, them. Yeah, 60 you know, miles as the crow yeah. flies. Hogbacks, which are which is a ridgeline of very sharp peaks, very jagged that, you know, and he's making his way over these, over a couple of them, I think, just to even get to the spot where he gets picked up. Yeah, and when he indicates at the beginning of his story that he started out, you know, near the, the mouth, I think the mouth of the Toba Inlet, where yeah. he had the, the First Nations guide take him. And then he hiked 25 miles northeast of there and then sort of had an assumption that the Sasquatch carried him another 25 miles, but that it must have been, again, east or – because they never came to water. So he, yeah. And so if you listen to all these assumptions and then you look at where he said he came out down by this logging camp, the it's too much distance. So yes. there's there's an issue there. It's a lot of ground to cover for any creature. However, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about this before. I think with the uh, – if you watch the skiers, still one of my favorite Bigfoot pieces of, of modern footage here. Yeah, we actually uh, had a link to that yeah. one on the uh, on the Dietloff Pastor. If you yeah. if you size it up, they cover – they, they it, whatever it is, covers quite a bit of ground and deep snow very quickly. Yes. So and again, not to further Albert's claim, but just, just – it's it's a lot. It's a lot to to believe that he went that far in that, that amount of time. Well, and this is another thing that I found as we were as we were doing this particular uh, episode and the research on it and the research on Osman is that wherever you come down on Bigfoot or Sasquatch or what you believe, this area is intense with 
I mean, it is just rife with stories. I mean, witnesses, yeah. lore going back for years with the with the local Native Americans. In fact, the library that uh, Tess, our research assistant, who helped us a great deal with background on this, by the way. Thank you, Tess. She actually managed to procure some original articles from the Agassiz Harrison Advance, which is a paper that actually was in business all the way up till 1990, and it changed to uh, the Agassiz uh, Journal or something. It changed. But it got bought did, out. But... Did John Green, he he was a uh, owner of a small paper, right? Uh, no, no, no. That wasn't Green. That was, oh, This sorry. is Burns, J.W. Burns. That's right. J.W. Burns owned this paper. And in fact, he wrote a story on April 1st of 1955. Uh, April 1st. Yes, two yeah. years before before Osman came out about a woman getting kidnapped, mm-hmm. like right on the hotel lawn <laughs> there somewhere yeah. in Agassiz right. and being taken off by a Sasquatch. And, you know, she was just talking about the weather a few minutes ago, 25-year-old yeah. woman and never to be returned. But it turns out that was an April Fool's joke. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I, I will save folks from, uh, sure, every place on the earth now. Because I was like, well, maybe not this country. I don't know. No, every place on the earth has their local legends and lore. Uh, we had a, a listener write us about doing a show about Hawaiian legends and, and ghosts. They have their own particular thing. Uh, there's the Ohio Grassman. Yeah. Uh, grass every man. area. Skunk Ape, the yeah. Yeti, the... It's some, there was some website I came across today, and it just said, fools and liars all, and that's the real question. Yeah. When you look at these many claims of eyewitnesses and all that, sure, a good deal of them might be hoaxes, they might be misunderstandings, all that stuff. But when you look at the big picture of it, how 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 pervasive it's been across multiple cultures over, some in some cases, up to a thousand years, you have to wonder if somewhere there's at least one, you know, because, <laughs> well, because people yeah. – are that many people making mistakes? In fact, I want to read from that paper that Tess managed to get them to actually send us some scans of some articles that they had. I want to read you this one article that – it's very short that they that they sent us today. This story was actually taken from McLean's Magazine, April 1st, 1929. Are the vast mountain solitudes of British Columbia of which but very few have been so far explored populated by a hairy race of giants, men, not ape-like men? Reports from time to time – by the way, there's going to be some definite political incorrectness in this story. I'm just reading <laughs> right it as it's written. Yeah. Uh, reports from time to time covering a period of many years have come from the hinterlands of the province that hairy giants had been occasionally seen by Indian and white trappers in the mountain fastnesses far from the pathway of civilization. These reports, however, were always vague and indefinite for the reason that no person could be found or at least nobody came forward with the information they had obtained a close-up view of, of these strange creatures. Persistent rumors led the writer to make diligent inquiries among old Indians. The question relating to the subject was always or nearly always evaded with the trite excuse, the white man don't believe, he make joke of the Indian. But after three years of plotting, I have come into possession of information more definite and authentic than has come to light at any previous time. Disregarding rumor and hearsay, I have prevailed upon men who claim they had actual contact with these hairy giants to tell what they know about them. Their story is set down here in good faith. Peter Williams lives on the Chehalis Reserve. Chehalis. Thank you. Chehalis? Chehalis. Che or Shea? I think Shea. Chehalis. Okay. Peter Williams lives on the Chehalis Reserve. I believe that he is a reliable as well as an intelligent Indian. Uh, Sorry, that's very insulting. He gave me the following (laughs) thrilling account of his experience with these people. Peter's encounter with the giant. That's a subheading here. Mm. One evening in the month of May, 20 years ago, He said, I was walking along, so that would have been 1909, roughly. I was walking along the foot of the mountain about a mile from the Chehalis Reserve. 
I thought I heard a noise, something like a grunt nearby. Looking in the direction in which it came, I was startled to see what I took at first sight to be a huge bear crouched upon a boulder 20 or 30 feet away. I raised my rifle to shoot it, but as I did, the creature stood up and let out a piercing yell. This is something I want to come back oh, to, yeah. by the way. Mm-hmm. It was a man, a giant, no less than six and one half feet in height and covered with hair. He was in a rage and jumped from the boulder to the ground. I fled, but not before I felt his breath upon my cheek. I never ran so fast before or since through brush and undergrowth toward the Statlu or Chehalis River, where my dugout was moored. From time to time, I looked back over my shoulder. The giant was fast overtaking me. A hundred feet separated us. Another look, and the distance measured less than 50. In a moment, the dugout shot across the stream to the opposite bank. The swift river, however, did not in the least daunt the giant, for he began to wade it immediately. (laughs) I arrived home almost worn out from running, and I felt sick. Taking an anxious look around the house, I was relieved to find the wife and children inside. I bolted the door and barricaded it with everything at hand. Then, with my rifle ready, I stood near the door and awaited his coming. Peter added that if he had not been so much excited, he could have easily shot the giant when he began to wade the river. After an anxious waiting of twenty minutes, resumed the Indian, I heard a noise approaching like the trampling of a horse. I looked through a crack in the old wall. It was the giant. Darkness had not yet set in, and I had a good look at him. Except that he was covered with hair and twice the bulk of the average man, there was nothing to distinguish him from the rest of us. He pushed against the wall of the old house with such force that it shook back and forth. The old cedar shook in timbers, creaked and groaned so much under the strain that I was afraid it would fall down and kill us. I whispered to the old woman to take the children under the bed. Peter pointed out what remained of the old house in which he lived at the time, explaining that the giant treated it so roughly that it had to be abandoned the following winter. After prowling and grunting like an animal around the house, continued Peter, he went away. We were glad, for the children and the wife were uncomfortable under the old bedstead. (laughs) That was the biggest problem, I guess. Next morning, I found his tracks in the mud around the house, the biggest of either man or beast I had ever seen. The tracks measured 22 inches in length, but narrow in proportion to their length. All right. So this goes on. There's actually another account after that, but that's yeah. the only one I wanted to read. Uh-huh. One of the things that I wanted to say about that particular story is the loud piercing yell. This is what you usually hear in a Bigfoot story. And yeah. Osman doesn't mention any of that. Any pe- yells, any tree knocking, any well, of that kind the, of stuff. When yeah, when the squealing the of the talk- pig. Yeah, but yeah. that's not that's not a, the thunderous roar no. that most people report these days. Right. If you believe any of this, I should say. <laughs> it's like yeah. Seinfeld. Not yeah. that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> right. um, but... That story actually rings more true to me in its briefness because there are common elements in that story. I had seen a show, I think it was Monster Quest or Monster Hunters a few years ago about a uh, hunting cabin in Alaska reachable only by seaplane where there there had been several attacks, including one where the house was actually dislodged off the foundation a little bit by this thing. Mm -hmm. And you can't even – there's no towns. There's no roads. You go on the seaplane to get there. And the crew of the show went there. To try and see, because I, I guess prior, uh, you know, there was obviously some hunter or somebody owned it, and they kept a journal, and then they shared it with other hunters, and yeah. everyone would go, and they would write in the journal what they did and what, right. where they caught, and all that kind of stuff. And it had been broken into at some point, the, and the refrigerator doors were torn off the hinges, and it was vandalized. Yeah. And the guy was like, "This is crazy. How do you vandalize this? You'd have to buy a seaplane to vandalize it." <laughs> yeah, right. So you're so angry, you've, you're lost, and then have found some. Yeah, you know, found some shelter that uh, you destroy the place. Right. So yeah. uh, the guy uh, gets he's very upset, about it, so he fixes everything up, and then he puts a board at the front door with a uh, hundred nails sticking oh, up. Oh, yeah, right. 
and uh, the thing apparently comes back and steps on it, and there's blood, and they actually collected some fur. I can't remember what they, if there was a conclusive analysis of the fur. Yeah. Uh, which would probably be important for me to know since I'm telling this story, but we'll get back to <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, the the point is that the way the cabin was assaulted and bumped and uh, knocked off the foundation a little bit and all that kind of stuff exactly matches this story from 1909. And this other story is something that happened in in recent history, 80s, 90s, you know, yeah, maybe even the right. early 2000s. Right. So there's more common ground there than there is in the Osman story. I still love the Osman story. I'll always sure, love it. But sure. I, that story, here comes a helicopter, but I'm going to keep talking. There's, there's, a lot <laughs> of, there's a lot of stories from that area yeah. that have more common elements than the Osman story has. Now, you were telling me about another story of a kidnapping, right? Yeah, that's another old story that predates. Uh, Not to put you on the spot, sorry, you weren't. No, no, no. It, it's uh, it's one of the. <laughs> there's a great site. We'll have the uh, website URL up for you, but it's called the Muchalat Harry story. Oh yeah, that one. And it, this is from 1928. So again, remember Albert Ostman, 1924. Four years later, Muchalat Harry. I hope I'm saying that right. I, that, right. I think that's the name of the local uh, tribe. You know, that was his nickname, but he. He's a Native American fellow who is very stout, very hardy, very strong, not afraid of anything. And he has a similar kidnapping experience. He went up, he went up uh, beaver trapping. Uh, now, this is, there, there's some interesting elements to this story that are different than Ostman's in the fact that, th- not that there were witnesses, but there are witnesses to him seeing it. When, okay, so basically what the story is, he goes up uh, by himself, as he usually does, and a lot of the other tribal folks don't go. Our, our friend uh, uh, Marty loves it when we say, Oh, yeah, the astonishing <laughs> drinking game. Yeah, apparently, he, I'm, not, I'm not aware of that, but apparently he drinks a, a full beer every time we say the word folk. So <laughs> there you go, have three or four folks, folks, folks. So anyway, so he goes up, which is uh, not usual for them. They don't like to go into the interior so much, but he wasn't afraid, and he's going tramping. And uh, he gets kidnapped from his campsite. A similar thing, except this thing just, he's wrapped up in blankets and he's in his probably long uh, union suit, <laughs> the, the old red uh, long underwear you see in the old, yes. old timers wear. But he gets grabbed and gets carted off, but a little bit more unbelievable in that the distance wasn't so great, okay. except that now he gets deposited in front of like 20 Bigfoot oh. or Big Feet. Yeah. Uh, of all di- I'm still not sure uh, the right way to do the plural on that. that uh, big, I think probably it's Bigfoot. Yeah. yeah. So uh, plural. It's, yeah, it's, <laughs> exactly. Uh, who knows? This is all, you know. I'm sure there's yeah. people that know and are going to email us about it. So, Well, you know what? Let us know yeah, what is yeah. the uh, accepted term. But in any case, he claims males, females, children, adolescents. There's a whole group of them. And the males are kind of poking up. They don't hurt him. But they're very curious about it. You know, so that's a part of Albert's story is uh, what you fellows want with me. He never finds out. Muchalot Harry never finds out either, other than they were kind of curious about him. Right. They don't harm him. They kind of come up. They touch his clothes. They're not used to that. They think his skin's really loose. And they kind of like poke and prod him. But they leave him alone. He's, he's terrified. You know, this guy who's afraid of nothing is, is frightened and wants to get out of there. Uh, he doesn't stay a couple of days. He, I think he waits until evening or, or kind of t- towards the, the – By the, the way, yeah. I don't think we covered that, but Osman was with them for six days. Yeah, that's quite yeah. a long time. Yeah, he days. had the provisions, but, yeah. you know, quite a long time. Eh, we'll get to this other other aspects of that. Muchalot Harry has a different experience. He's more much more frightened, even though they don't harm him. Now, here's the here's the part where you have to wonder about it. Okay, now that's pretty outlandish. That's pretty crazy, somebody to have that kind of story. But his story was told by a father, Anthony Terrar, 
of Mount Angel Abbey in Oregon. Okay, now this was told to Peter Bird, and 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 this is an excerpt where we get the story. It's from the website, but they took it from an excerpt uh, from Peter Burns' book where he talked to Father Terrar. I think I'm saying that right, and uh, Father Terrar witnessed this. Well, he witnessed Harry tearing out of there because <laughs> he did not stop. He just escaped. He ran as fast as he could, as hard as he could. I think, I'm not sure if he just had socks. I'm not even sure if he, I think he was barefoot. Well, they found him that way. Yeah. He bypasses his camp. Now, he's leaving a lot of, and this is what's verifiable. He left all of his trapping gear and his prized rifle. Oh, okay? right. That's he never lot... went back into the mountains, right? No, never again. Okay. Yeah. And when they found him, this is like three or four in the morning. It took him, and this is about 12 miles. Okay. So again, shorter distances. That's a little bit more believable, I guess, in that realm. He gets in his canoe, doesn't even stop to grab anything. Yeah. Uh, you know, very valuable stuff. That's how he makes his living. Okay. And he's so terrified, much like Dan Hensky uh, from yeah. the Oak Island, probably just so terrified Forget that. I am getting in the canoe, paddles his way back to the village there, and at about 3, 4 in the morning, they hear these these shrieks and, and screams. People get up. They go down there. The, the other brothers of Father Terrar go down, find this guy just freaked out in this canoe, uh, shivering out of his wits. And so they, they calm him down, and he, I, he didn't talk about it for quite a while, but finally he, I think he kind of relayed his story. And it took about three weeks to nurse him back to health. And so Father Terrar was feeding him. He he got his strength back. During this time, his hair had turned completely white. Wow. So the point being is that... That's a good lie. Yeah. If it's a lie, that's boy, a good lie. That's, a, that's yeah. a long way to go and a long uh, way to keep yeah, that up. Yeah, because he didn't get for, disability back then. Yeah, no. <laughs> he's out of work. He's out of work. He, well, he gave that up completely. He never went back to get his stuff. He never went camping again. He stayed in the village. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying is like that's a wild tale. Yeah. But with some grounded, immediate witnesses to what happened. This is what I would say about Albert Ostman's story and uh, Harry's story here is that Maybe they did see something like Bigfoot-like or some kind of strange creature. Now, maybe Albert did see something like that, but the other parts of the story were maybe a little bit embellished to make it a better story. Yeah, I don't want to. I, mean, I don't like, want to brand him with that no, because no, no, I'm not, you know, it's when, not we're telling we don't, a story. We get, yeah, we gotta we gotta be fair. But we. But like there. you said, oh, you know what? But Scott, it's like you said earlier. There's a kernel of truth to a lot of folklore. That's right. Uh, so maybe he saw something, and then you know what? Maybe Harry did. S- Maybe it wasn't a family. Maybe some things are off about his story. But I think, you know, according to the eyewitnesses, this guy saw something that just frightened him to his core. I think, again, with like with Osman, and when you look at all this stuff and the, and the nature of how these creatures are interacting, they have these family units. It's almost like, you know, when you think about the stories of lost tribes or lost cultures being found at how humanoid right. is this situation and and th- and there's some people. There's speculation that they're related to giant oh, gigantopithecus. Gigantopithecus. <laughs> well, that, yeah. that was a, a Grover Krantz, one of the. Uh, he's one of the few really serious anthropologists accredited to study this, to take this up, right? And, to take uh, it seriously. Well, he 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 spent his whole career researching this and basically lost his career because nobody took him seriously. Right. And he tried to get his pub his papers published. It delayed his tenure. It just it really screwed things up. But he believed in this so much 
Why did he? Weren't there some specific castings and cases that led him to feel that way? Well, there's the the cripple. Yeah, oh, there was cripple the foot. cripple That's foot right. incident cripple that foot. had uh, basically the things that he saw. He said, "Either this hoax is so good, this guy knew, this guy knows." gross anatomy because he could surmise from the footprint that it was an injured foot or something like club foot. It'd been broken and not healed properly. Yeah, something, something like yeah, that. And yeah. he's like, well, whoever did this went to that That's extreme. That's the extra mile yeah. in terms of making a fake footprint. Well, speaking of fake, and again, we'll get to the Patterson thing, but I mentioned yeah. this, Scott, the, I mentioned this earlier. footprints ever. Well, yeah. the, foot, the footprints are fakey, but I didn't realize till I saw the stabilized footage from the film, because it's, it's very shaky. It's hard to make it out. Yeah. And I'd always heard years and, you know, since I was a kid that it was a female book, a female Bigfoot. Yeah. And the Patterson Gimlin film. And the, yeah. You know, affectionately, affectionately nicknamed Patty, I yes. think after Patterson. Yeah. Right. But <laughs> when I saw the footage, I think it was even like a, a couple of nights ago. Yeah. And you start looking like, Oh my goodness, those are big hairy breasts. Yeah. She's <laughs> like, got... It's a real, you know, see, it's like, oh, uh, you know what? I didn't even think about it because. That's a whole other episode. No, that's a, that is a, if you're into that, that's a whole other thing. But my point being is that that's a pretty good angle on a hoax. And to think of that. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, when you, when you see the walk, now I'm not going to get into how much I believe, but I, I can't discount it really after seeing so much of this kind of evidence. I don't know what it is, but when you see, because everybody says like, well, it's just a really good costume, you know, it's a, but it's kind of fakey looking costume. If it is, it is feature film, modern day, contemporary quality, I would say. Well, it's, because like it, I it, said, it's it for jiggles. another episode. It's for another episode, but yes. There's a costume shop in Charlotte, North Carolina that claims they made it for him. Right. And uh, that it was filled with football pads and... Yeah. You know, hey, that's that's no. one angle. But anyway, uh, but but there anyway, are the, many angles on that story. Yeah. So don't dismiss it just because you heard that part of it, because right. there's there's a lot more to it than that. And, right. And we'll get to that in a, maybe sometime next year. <laughs> yeah. But no, th- this is the thing. When, when you hear stories like this, you look for bits that you can latch on to that are believable. Ostman's story, yes, there are some things that are more believable than others, some things that are kind of preposterous. Again, if you look at Mucho Lot Harry's story, just the fact that he came back that way and stuck with that joke for the rest of his life because he gave it up completely. He was so – he was traumatized, we could say. Okay, so now we come to the point but where we kind of – we're not going to pick this apart because that's no. kind of silly. Yeah, <laughs> it's no, little... it's like our, our next our next show is going to be on Paul Bunyan. <laughs> <laughs> Why is the ox blue? That makes no sense. <laughs> Yes, that's what we're saying is that it ruins the fun, I think, if you look at it critically. But you know what? There are just some things about his story I think that we can analyze and in our way that we do, try to give it a rational spin. Yes. Okay, so the first thing we come across, for me anyway, is like if you – if getting there, it's like I, it's I believable to me that he could cover that amount of ground over enough time – he could do that. Yeah. Uh, so th- getting where he was or what he claimed to. And I think he could have thing. been mistaken about where he started or where he finished yes. based on his own facts of saying, I can only tell you the specifics of my time with Bigfoot. The rest of it, it may be an amalgamation. He said that himself. Sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. So, but he, and he's kind of given himself an out. Not that he's trying to do that. But yeah. you know what I'm saying? That's the one part of the story that can be confirmed is like, where did you leave? Where did you enter? Where did you come out that time? How long were you there? Those are all things that can be nailed down. So he's saying, I, that might be just a, an amalgamation, a bunch of things patched together. But the part you can't prove, that I'm absolutely sure about. Yes. Again, not, not, <laughs> not saying that you know, he's doing it on purpose, but it, it helps no. with the story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the first thing that I thought was kind of unusual is that, okay, he gets scooped up and he's in a sleeping bag. 
And he's claiming now that it's it's getting really after about three hours, it's really hot in there. And I'm sure it's stuffy. But he, what he said was this is the middle of the night. And I've been up in that country, and it's cool in the evening, especially that close to the coast. It's yeah. it's damp, it's cool. I don't remember what time of year it was. Do you remember early on? No, but I remember him saying it was summer? nice in the daytime. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice in the daytime, yeah. but it gets cool. <clears throat> yeah. And there's some there's – a. I don't think it would be as hot as he describes it because the way – if you read it, way he, the way he describes it is that if I hadn't been let out of that bag, I would have suffocated immediately. It's like, well – you know, when you were a kid and you were like camped out in the backyard and we would sleep in and see how long it would, the sun would take to, to wake us up. Yeah. And it gets hot in the tent or you're sleeping out with oh, just yeah. the, you know what I'm saying? That like feeling. I'd be in the bag and it's just in a being in a hot sleeping bag. Yeah. And I thought it was like bright daylight. Like, oh, well, that's why the bag's hot. It's the sun's shining. It's, you know, it's still summer, but it wasn't. And it's, and it's, he said it was kind of going to rain. Yeah. So all those factors, like, eh, okay, but still, I don't know, you know, I don't know what he considers hot and stuffy, but, yeah. but about to die, uh, maybe not. Yeah. Okay, so that's one thing. Another thing is when he gets to the area, the way he describes it, the, 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 look, being out in the territory like that, you kind of judge distances very well because you have to cover them, your life depends on it. He's in a basin that's about eight to 10 acres in diameter. That's a pretty large... That's, yeah, it's big. Area okay yeah. for our it, that, an acre is six hundred and sixty feet by sixty six feet for our yes. uh, European folks <laughs> drink another beer Marty <laughs> uh, that, that is four thousand forty seven square meters okay so it's a large large area several football fields right yes at yeah. least and yeah. so but the way he describes it he's wandering around to different edges different walls of this thing yeah so that doesn't kind of add up for uh, me oh and you know what else doesn't was a thing that i noticed too. yeah there's a couple of things not to derail you no no go ahead yeah uh, a couple of things one was he made no mention of where the young female was during the escape you're right none right. They're just like – he said that the, the young male was cowering with the mother. The yeah. father had run off to the spring. No mention of the female. Additionally, I think it was Green who says in his book that outside of this particular account of the story, he was he was fairly certain that he had been brought there as a gift for the female. <laughs> Wait, where did you read that? Uh, I, this is what this is what Green has is, has oh, said. Right. Okay. Osman said, sort of off the record. I got it. There was right. a couple of off the record things actually <laughs> that I really need <laughs> yeah. to include. I can't believe I almost left this out. Yeah. Well, one was that he thought he might be a mate or a toy or something for the young female, ah. who he described as being rather flat chested and underdeveloped. <laughs> so not quite as appealing. But, and he also yeah. was, but he also was very modest about her. Yeah. He gave her like so when he told the story. Apparently, he was very modest about. He also said. That the old feller, the big guy, yeah. all right, and I like the way you say that, the I know, old feller, yeah, the yeah. old feller, and we don't have. I, I know we have some younger listeners. We have to forgive me, but he yeah. said the old feller was really, 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 really not very well endowed. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes, that, he, he had an embarrassing uh, situation so going on downstairs. Peak. Yeah, he, he, well, well he no, it was there. Peak. It was hanging out. You know, it, oh. naked. it's not a peak. That's just he's standing there all the time. <laughs> So yeah. there was that. These are things wait, he's wait. not going to say in the paper. Okay. 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 All you right. Know. You know, there was some implication that, you know, he had been picked up for possibly for relationship. I, and uh, by the way, I want to come back to this. In yeah. the lore of the general area and specifically with the the First Nations people or yes. the, the Indians, the, yeah. the, the, the natives to the area, there were stories of shortages of mates – in the hmm. in the Sasquatch tribes and of oh. people being kidnapped because they're right. going extinct. Yeah. And they oh. needed 
to continue. So, the, I mean, this is like the really right. deep stuff. So, yeah, I'm yeah. just, you know, whatever. I'm just putting that out there the, for people to enjoy. <laughs> All right, so we can get back to your, your a points. Sas- but, yeah. Sasquatch love angle. Yeah. Uh, but no, that comes, I'm not, we're not going to get into it right now, but there yeah. are some very kind of humorous Sasquatch off- love. <laughs> That was some, a song, right? No, Muskrat love, sorry. Very close, though. I'll give you points for that. <laughs> <laughs> Captain and Tennille. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the idea, though, is that it's the Forest Bride, not my name, of course, the one, just one R. But you know what I'm saying? That's a very old cave. Man, the caveman hits the, the the lady across the you know with the with the club takes him back to the cave. Yeah, you're suddenly now married. <laughs> you're married to a caveman. That's <laughs> well, that's some elements of the, you know the, his story. The the ook ook and the yes. you know, soka soka. Yeah. Again, I don't know what their language is, but it it, it sounds uh, yeah you know I mean kind of a bit yeah folklorish I guess and, and yeah by the way that language way. takes a specific palate to be able to even articulate yeah. That primates don't necessarily have, right? Well, it, other existing primates. It, it, I think. I think a. Uh, I mean, uh, these gorillas that are super smart, they're signing because they don't speak. Yeah. Well, they do th- things like ooh, ooh. you know they yeah. make they make vocalizations, but it's not that. Wait, clear. what do they do again? Ooh, ooh. Oh, very. Now, don't you remember that in uh, Christopher Lambert and? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. Raised by Tarzan. Apes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the the point Awful though movie. is that. Awful movie. <laughs> Uh, but you know what? I employ- uh, I enjoyed uh, Glenn Close's voice uh, yeah. being dubbed over uh, Andy McDowell's. Oh, <laughs> yeah. 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 It, it, it really added something. <laughs> no, my point is that you, you're now messing with anthropological elements here that can be studied in that are they primates? Are they more human? He doesn't know. He's just he's trying to tell us what he saw. But some things go against modern Bigfoot research, I guess, and that they're generally not the kind who are going to kidnap people because they're afraid of people. They don't want them in their territory. That's why they're throwing rocks, uh, tree thumping, tree yes. knocking. That's a big thing. Yes, and by the way, that's the, the other thing that happened to that Monster Quest crew at yeah. the Alaskan house right. was that nothing happened the whole time they were there. And at the last night, they're out by the fire and rocks started coming in from the darkness. Yeah. They started getting pelting with rocks, and they got so scared that they went in the house. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, but I'm saying that it's now – the modern angle on it is that it's probably unlikely that they're going to want to interact with you because, again, it's the conquistador theory. It's like nothing good can come from greeting the visitors yes. with rifles. Yeah. That never ends well for the indigenous folks. So we come to a couple of other things that were just kind of humorous. But didn't make a lot of sense to me. One is that he said the boy, you know, one of the pastimes was that, and oh, correct yes. me if I'm wrong, yes, no, the, 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 one of the pastimes was that he would rock on his buns, yes. <laughs> grabbing his feet, yeah. and then see how far he could jump, I guess. It was really hard to picture this. Yes. Because it didn't make any sense to me. He would okay. bounce up off his butt. Uh, off his butt, I don't butt, know if yeah. he was sitting crisscross Well, he's kind of rocking, yeah, he's <laughs> rocking on his on his buttocks and uh, rocking Isn't back and forth. Is this what those levitating yogis do, though? They bounce um, up and down. They cross their legs and bounce up and down. That's and not a bouncing levitating. thing. I think it's a, it's if the the gag is done properly, you're just levitating. You're not bouncing. I, and, well, and it's not for I, fun to see how the, far the you can go. The footage I've seen, they're bouncing really? on their buns. Yeah. I didn't, uh, I, I want to believe that they're levitating. <laughs> no, the only person I've seen levitate is David Blaine. So ah, yeah, but see, that's the thing. When you we have to think about this with magic, it's not magic. There's a trick behind. No, I know that. Yeah, yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah, no, but you have to keep that in mind. But yes. what I'm saying is that, it, like Spring Hill Jack here, referring to a, an older show. 
I have a super loud mechanical flip-clock <laughs> Swedish, in here. The loudest, the studio. yeah, Scandinavian yeah, that's clock ever made. I'm leaving it in. I'm ah, saying, very nice. Yeah. It, but that, it did We're getting little, close to midnight. I know. That's <laughs> what that sound means. <laughs> it's a little bit like a Bigfoot roar in the background. Yeah. Uh, no, but he claims that like, well, you know, when the, the young feller there could leap when he did this, some of his longest leaps were 20 feet. It's like, I know. Right. I, I so can't... the little guy is bouncing around on his bun. 20 feet. 20 feet. Go pace out 20 feet. That just sounds kind of crazy. And not something that, like, what if you saw seven that. feet tall. He's very strong. Five inches. Look, I can see you getting enough. Uh, and if you're a Bigfoot, a couple of feet. 20 feet. Okay. And this guy should know distances. Anyway, yeah. kind of crazy. Yeah. A silly aspect of it. Yeah. Now, I want to kind of, kind of something that I can guarantee has been done and did not have the effect that Ostman thought it would. And that's the snuff-chewing incident here. Okay. Okay, so I'll tell this quickly. Yeah. But basically, as you heard from Ostman's story, he thought if he, if he could get the, uh, the little feller there to give the old guy some snuff, he would eat it, and that would kill him. Yeah. Okay, so this is the story. I used to wrestle in high school. And one of our unlimited, our, our big guy, uh, he's one of the unlimited uh, class wrestlers. I think he had to be over 180 pounds to wrestle that. You know, you're basically like an adult at that yeah, point. Yeah. I, I think I wrestled at 135 to 144. But this guy, like a lot of guys in high school back then, would chew tobacco, okay, like your Copenhagen or Skoll. And they do it all the time. Some guys even in class would, would take a, a dip. Yeah. And they got to the point where you can't spit that in class, so they would swallow it, which, Ugh. yeah, it's awful. But my point is, like, that would, I think the first couple, of, that would tear a hole in your stomach, but they got used to it. Now, I didn't see this, now I, but everybody else did, because I was not at this match for whatever reason. He got caught by the coach taking a dip of Copenhagen, or Cope, as they said. Yeah. And this is at a match, okay? He's got to get up and win one for the team here. The coach said, oh, you like taking a dip? Well, eat the rest of the can, buddy. If you think you're going to do that on my team before a match... Let's see how tough you are. And so he apparently he had to eat the rest of the can of this chewing tobacco, and it made him sicker than a dog, as we wow. say. But just yeah. now, what's funny though is I guess when it came time for him to wrestle, his match came up. He went out there and pinned the guy so fast because he wanted to get back and just curl up in a ball <laughs> and just rock back. It, apparently, people say he looked kind of green around oh, the gills, God, and yeah. and you know, as, as used to chewing as he was. Eating the, t- you know, it's one thing swallowing the spit, but eating yeah. the tobacco. Yeah. So my point was is that, yeah, he didn't, he didn't, eyes didn't roll back in his head and he's not ook, ook, ook doing f- somersaults in the air like a cartoon. Yeah. He was just like, oh, you know, just curled up on the, you know, with these metal folding chairs. And I think he was just like kind of curled up in a ball. Yeah. And he wanted the match to be over so quickly. He just, he went beast mode on the guy <laughs> and, and, and pinned him within probably a few seconds. Right. So anyway, that's, that's the point is that it doesn't kill you. I'm not sure sure Albert would have thought that either. Who knows? But like we pointed to Baron Munchausen, it's an effective gag for a well, story. Yeah, he's telling a story. I and mean, he's definitely embellishing. The question is, is he embellishing from zero or is he embellishing from 20 or 30 percent of something yeah, that happened? Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, but he says... Plus, like, he's 30 know, years later, he's telling the story. It's 30 years later. You know, he claimed he'd heard that saving a guy from an angry bull because he blew the uh, snuff into his eyes. Now, this goes more towards the powdered snuff I were telling you about before, where you could blow it. You know, the, the stuff, this kind of is a little more chunky. Yeah. It's wet. Yeah. You know, if you've ever seen Copenhagen, it's, it's wet. Not good stuff to be around. But in any case, that's a little hinky, as the kids say. Yeah, so anyway, there's little things like that that are kind of, um, they make the story even a little more preposterous. Yeah. But those are a couple of things. I mean, the, the woven mats, it's like, again, they, they, he said there were strips of bark, I think cedar bark, and there was dry moss as kind of insulation. 
It's like, well, I can see a semi-intelligent creature, but to get it actually woven, I don't know what they look like. But it was kind of, there's some things that are, that make sense and there's things that don't. But again, you're picking apart Paul Bunyan. That's, that yeah. was a good point. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. well, how big is the axe? Well, who made the axe for him? How did yeah. he, how did how he grind the steel? Yeah. yeah, you know, so you can't look at it too hard. And, Tori Hansel. <laughs> <laughs> As they say, don't don't start pulling that thread on that sweater. Yeah. You know? So what do you think? I don't know. I love the story. Yeah. I almost don't care whether yeah. it's true or not. I do think something is going on somewhere. And yeah. I don't know. It's just hard for me to believe that with all the sightings and all the stories across all the cultures and all the decades and even you know centuries of years that the stories are pervasive – it's hard not to think that some somewhere something real happened. Yeah. And something yeah. real existed. It is also possible for me to believe that even with as populated as the earth is now that things are still out there that we don't know about. Oh, no, there's they're discovering species, well, mostly underwater, but yeah. weird stuff no one's ever seen before that they have to keep naming. And yeah. I don't know what the rate is, but it's significant. So, you know, we've only seen a very small part of this world we live in. Well, this falls under cryptozoology. Yeah. It's just meaning like it's it's mysterious zoology, you know, yeah. that we don't know about. Chupacabra. Yeah, exactly. You know, and there's people who have seen that. I think a couple have been shot now, and uh, they're wow. weird looking. You, you don't come know. down a different territory on that. Well, uh, I read tracking the chupacabra. I've got oh, a whole right. thing on that one. So no, but what, my, what I'm saying though is that there's all kinds of strange things out there. Out of UFOs, uh, your Bigfoot, your ghosts, all this kind of paranormal stuff, this is probably one of the things that is more easily believed. Gigantopithecus, I believe, was a real... They found some mandibles. Uh, they didn't yes. find a whole skeleton, but they found some lower jaw bones and teeth of this thing. And from that, they can extrapolate how big it was, what its you know maximum growth was. And it was massive. I think probably seven or eight feet. Up to 10 feet, actually. Up to 10 feet, okay. Yeah. And lived alongside primitive humans about a hundred thousand years ago, and I think they kind of died out. I'm not sure on the facts. Okay, but, yeah, but I think I, yeah. I think I read that. Other than the height, I know. Yes. About the height, okay. Yeah. So other than that, so there, you know what? It's not that impossible that a patch of them here and there have survived somehow. Now, if you want to get crazy fringy, and if we we might get into that territory if we do cover the subject in a broad sense. People now think they might be interdimensional. That's why you've never seen a corpse. You've never seen a, a burial mound. Nothing. They kind of they kind of pop up and go away just as quickly. Yes. What's that behind? Why are why are there's Bigfoot sightings that are connected with uh, UFO sightings? Why is that happening? Anyway, that's the grand unifying theory. Of the yeah, paranormal. that's a whole other thing. And I also heard, and I I wanted to track this down before we recorded tonight, and I didn't. But I had heard that Les Stroud, who I'd mentioned before yeah, as enjoying yeah. his show on Bigfoot, that he apparently did a radio appearance where he implied that he either heard or found out that the U.S. government or the military or the the logging industry were actually well aware that yeah. they existed yeah, I've heard and that. were covering it up because they wanted to avoid having their potential profit centers restricted yeah. from access. Right. right. Which is plausible. I mean, here we are with no, a conspiracy. Your, yeah. And again, I'm, I'm not actually positive that that was less or what the situation was, but it was something that I came across a few days ago and meant to go back on, and I'm just now realizing that I didn't. But he was basically saying, they know it's out there. Yeah. They're 
covering it up because they don't want to get into like the Endangered Species Act and then suddenly <laughs> they, they're completely out of business. Yeah. As a seven foot tall spotted owl, yeah, they didn't have to protect. <laughs> yeah, but that you know that's the point. Is like, well, you know what? Because then you have to explain it. It's like yes, it's like Dyatlov in a way. Like uh, if we told you there were orbs, now we have to tell you about this and that. Sorry about the bad Russian accent, but you know what? You know what I'm saying? I like to stick one in every show (laughs) just to annoy you. Uh, Yeah. If you just not say anything or deny it, and then the people who claim that look crazy, and it's like, and that's the end of it. It's kind of like, you know, what people say about UFOs. It's like, you end up looking nuts, and that's kind of why he didn't say anything for so long, probably. Yeah. But you know what? People also tell tall tales, and, and I believe have really crazy, silly uh, you know, claims and stories of things that happen to them, which don't make a lot of sense to me. And why do they do it? Well, you know, for the for the, the usual reasons, attention, and uh, you make a name for yourself. We're certainly talking about Albert uh, all these years later yes, uh, for, a great, for a great legend and a great story, whatever it may be. And like with everything else, Scott, there's something more to it. <laughs> that's going to wrap it up for tonight. Yes, it is. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in two weeks with a show on a topic we have not yet decided on. Our theme was composed by Judson Crane and our sound design by Ryan McCullough. Our research department is Tess Feifel. Thanks to Jim Creative Design for our logo. Most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com as well as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Google+. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.